I suppose the countdown has begun since Thanksgiving is behind us. In fact, if you are like me and you have nothing to do with Black Friday and you buy most of your gifts online that are delivered right to your door, then it is very important for you to know there are only 30 shopping days left until Christmas. So just mark that down, and I will try to remind us from week to week as uh, Christmas approaches. It's always interesting uh, to get up uh, to speak on a Sunday after a big holiday to see who is here and who is not here. And as I look around the auditorium, I, I, I see that there are a number of our folks who must still be away, uh, traveling, visiting perhaps, but many of them have been replaced by other family members and guests uh, who are with us today, and we're certainly grateful for uh, your presence this morning, and, and it doesn't have to be a Sunday after a big holiday for you to come, and it might be that you're living here uh, in Paris and looking for a church home, and if you are, we would love uh, for you to certainly consider uh, Lamar Avenue. I do pray that everyone had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Lori and I had a, a very good Thanksgiving. It was a very rushed Thanksgiving. Uh, Thanksgiving morning, we picked up our youngest son, Taylor, and his wife uh, in Dallas, drove to my parents, actually my brother's home, uh, in Ada for Thanksgiving lunch at 1230. Then at 5.30, we went to Lori's parents to have Thanksgiving dinner with her family. After we concluded that dinner, we then drove to Oklahoma City, and we checked into a downtown uh, motel, spent the night there, and finally, at about 3 o'clock on Friday afternoon, we got to see our grandson. I, I thought I was going to have to call the police on Lori. She was getting so anxious to see uh, Jet, and with a lot of miscommunication that tends to occur with our oldest son, Luke, we finally got to see uh, Jet. And really, the highlight of the whole weekend uh, for us, even more than the outcome of a certain football game that occurred in Morgantown, West Virginia, Friday night, was when Jet got to spend the night with us Friday in that hotel. He slept between us, perpendicular to us. <laughs> His head was basically on my chest. I got headbutted all night. Lori got kicked all night. She had the feet in, and he snored the entire night. And you know what? We didn't care a bit. <laughs> and then uh, Saturday morning, we, we got up uh, again very early, got Taylor and Katie back to Dallas, had lunch with his good, one of his good friends, back to DFW. Uh, they flew back to California uh, last night. So it was, it was a very fast-paced and kind of a whirlwind uh, Thanksgiving, but, but we enjoyed it, and, and it is good to see uh, everyone here uh, this morning. A couple of other things uh, before we uh, continue. You know, I've been providing a little brief outline uh, each Sunday for the sermon, and, and some of you are 
uh, are using that, and, and I've got a, uh, a very positive response for that. Well, when we started that, there, there was, you know, the question, where is a good place to put those outlines that make it kind of convenient uh, for everyone? And Joe Moore went to work on that, and he recruited John Gentry, and between the two of them, I think John did the little construction work and Joe was working behind, behind the scenes. This morning, if you didn't notice, we now have three little cool outline holders that you can look for each Sunday morning. There's one beside this door, one beside this door, and one on that wall. So thank you guys uh, for uh, your hard work and your diligence uh, to that. So now to make, maybe it'll be a little more convenient. You won't have to go looking on the Welcome Center or looking where those outlines are. And uh, I'll continue to provide those outlines, so take advantage uh, of that. I, I wanted to say very quickly, I hadn't had a chance to really do this, but, but last Sunday evening, Lori and I hosted... Uh, the teen devotional, and we roasted hot dogs and made s'mores and a, and a little, on a little fire on our little island, and just a wonderful evening with uh, Jared and Christy and some other sponsors and ten or so of our uh, teenagers. Parents, they were well behaved. Uh, it, it was great. It was wonderful, and we look forward to doing, doing that some more. Clint Gage told a story. He told me that he remembered the very first devotional that he ever attended with me as the youth minister. And it was over in our little brand new duplex, and I think, Clint, you were probably middle school. This is the middle school group. And Clint said, everyone arrived, and before we started anything, I read down the law on do not spill anything, do not make a mess, this is a brand new duplex, this is brand new carpet, and, and he said, I threatened to take anyone who did outside and exert bodily harm. Well, Clint, and I, I honestly don't remember this, and Lori said she didn't remember it as well. So I guess we were watching a movie, and halfway through the movie, Clint spilled a Coke. <laughs> and then I was almost afraid to ask this question. I said, well, did I take you outside and harm you? <laughs> and he said, no, I actually handled it pretty well. So anyway, so that, that was quite a thing to have Clint... Uh, at that first devotional and tell that story and then to have uh, his son uh, Grayson with us last week. That's, that's pretty, pretty awesome. But I told Jared this was the first teen devotional I can remember hosting. I wasn't in charge. And I just kind of sat back and let Jared deal with it, you know, kind of a deal. But thanks for, for you guys uh, coming out. One, one more announcement on, on perhaps a little, certainly a more serious note. Received word yesterday morning, and, and I hope maybe word has circulated uh, this morning, but Brother Hugh Anthony uh, is in uh, the Paris Regional Medical Center, uh, apparently with some pneumonia, 
And uh, Jay asked me to be sure and spread that word today. And let's be praying for Hugh and Gene. Uh, he is in room 410, and I will be checking on, on Hugh this afternoon. Don't really know if he needs a lot of visitors uh, at this time, but we'll be sure and, and try to do the best to communicate uh, updates as uh, Hugh's um, condition hopefully uh, in, improves. Last week, uh, I began a new uh, short series of sermons that really fall, would fall under the theme of connecting with God and that portion of our vision statement, which emphasizes making disciples and encouraging us to be uh, more evangelistic. And if you were uh, here last Sunday, I began with a list of nine reasons from Chuck Lawless as to why maybe Christians aren't more uh, apt to share their uh, faith uh, today. Well, this morning, I don't have a list of nine reasons, but of 15. And this list comes from Tom Rayner about three years ago in, in his blog. Uh, Rainer listed 15 reasons our churches are less evangelistic today. So listen uh, to what Rainer uh, says about this. Christians have no sense of urgency to reach lost people. Many Christians and church members do not befriend and spend time with lost people. Many Christians and church members are just lazy and apathetic. We are more known for what we are against than what we are for. Our churches have an ineffective evangelistic strategy of you come rather than we go. Many church members think that evangelism is the role of the preacher and paid staff. Church membership today is more about getting my needs met rather than reaching the lost. Church members are in a retreat mode as culture becomes more worldly and unbiblical. Many church members really don't uh, believe that Christ is the only way of salvation. Our churches are no longer houses of prayer equipped to reach people who are searching for Jesus. Churches have lost their focus on making disciples who will thus be equipped and motivated uh, to reach the lost. Christians do not want to share the truth of the gospel for fear they will offend others. Political correctness is too commonplace, even among Christians. Most Christians have unregenerate members who have not received Christ themselves. Some churches have theological systems. I knew that was going to happen. Some churches have theological systems that do not encourage evangelism. And finally, reason number 15, according to Tom Rainer, our churches have too many activities. They are too busy to do the things that really matter. And so last week, after sharing that uh, initial list, I asked the question, why are we reluctant to do evangelism. And, and I really think if, if we were, were, were honest with ourselves and we, we really thought about and analyzed 
uh, the nine reasons Chuck Wallace gave and the 15 reasons that Tom Rainer gives, I, I think that many of those things would apply to us. We spend a lot of time talking about church growth. And as, as we mentioned last week, you wouldn't be here this morning if Christianity and your faith and perpetuating the gospel were not important to you. And, and I think all of us, we, we want this church to exist 20, 30, 40, 50, uh, 100 years from now until the Lord comes again. And that will only occur, that will only happen if we are willing to share our faith. And so there, even though we discuss a lot about church growth and we talk a lot about methodology, it's as simple as this. You and I being not only willing to live out our faith and be good examples for those that we come in contact with every day, but to also be willing to talk about it as well. And so we began this short series of lessons last week to encourage us to overcome maybe some of the reluctance we have in sharing our faith, in, in taking the, the Great Commission very seriously, and in maintaining that it should be the number one priority among God's people today. And so to help us in this, we've gone to the Old Testament, and we've gone to the story of Jonah, who, whom we might classify as the reluctant missionary. And so last week we looked at Jonah uh, chapter 1, and I began last week by giving a very simple outline that was made popular several years ago by a man by the name Kyle Yates, wrote a little book titled Preaching from the Prophets, running from God, protesting Jonah 1, running to God, praying chapter 2, and that's the chapter we'll cover uh, this morning. Next week, chapter 3, running with God, as we find the second time God's call comes to Jonah, he does go to the city of Nineveh. And then finally, chapter 4, running ahead of God, as Jonah sits under that plant and pouts because of God's grace and mercy to even the enemy. So before we get to chapter 2, here are three things that we learned last week from chapter 1. First of all, it is impossible to escape God's presence. You'll remember that Jonah, upon receiving this commission from God, decides to get on a boat and sail to Tarshish. And even though we really don't know exactly where the ancient city of Tarshish was, it was the opposite direction from Nineveh. And so Jonah gets on this boat in an attempt to flee God's presence. And he learned that he couldn't. And so a second thing he learns is it's impossible to escape God's projects. There was a project that God had given to Noah. Or, or excuse me, to Jonah. And that was to go to Nineveh and to preach to that city. We learned in, in chapter 1 where the evilness 
of Nineveh had risen up to God. And God had placed that city under judgment. And so he sends his prophet to that city. Uh, a task, a mission, a calling, a project, if you will. And Jonah tries to escape the assignment. But he also learned it's impossible to escape God's pursuit. And one of the lessons we'll emphasize this morning and continue to emphasize in the remaining two lessons is how God, when he gives us assignment, an, an assignment, he hangs in there with us. He doesn't abandon us and leave us on our own, but he is, is there with us to encourage and to empower uh, through his spirit. So it's impossible to escape God's presence. It's impossible to escape God's projects. And it is impossible to escape God's pursuits. All right, let's go to chapter 2. In Jonah chapter 2, well, when we ended last week, Jonah, of course, has been thrown overboard and has been thrown into uh, the Mediterranean Sea. And we read where God had appointed this great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of that fish for three days and three nights. Chapter 2 basically is a prayer that Jonah prays from within the belly of that great fish. And it might be classified as a thanksgiving psalm. When you read this prayer of Jonah and you read some of the psalms, uh, of the 150 psalms that we have in that book, we'll, we'll see that it is very similar to a number of those psalms. Psalms of David and others. Prayers of thanksgiving which are offered to God. I outlined chapter 2 uh, into three sections. Uh, this portion will be brought to us by the letter D, by the way. Beginning in verse 1 and continuing through verse 6a, we find Jonah in distress. And I, I would like to suggest, and we'll get into this as the lesson continues, but verses 2 through 6a seem to describe what Jonah experienced while he was having been cast overboard as he is sinking to the bottom of the sea and perhaps even landing there on the bed of the sea, uh, surrounded in the mud and the murk and the, the seawood, seaweed. So Jonah is in distress. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish, and he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord... And he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. Thou didst hear my voice, for thou hast cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All thy breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I have been expelled from thy sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward thy holy temple. Water encompassed me. To the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. Again, this language seems to suggest 
that this is what Jonah experienced once he was thrown overboard uh, by those pagan sailors. He's thrown into the sea, and as he sinks to the depths, to the bottom of the sea, he's engulfed by water. He he seems to describe, he, he lands on the floor of the sea. The seaweed is engulfing him. And at the point of death, all of a sudden, this great fish swallows Jonah. And it seems at that point, Jonah realizes that this fish has been sent by God to save him from drowning. And so beginning in verse 6b and continuing through the end of the the psalm or the end of the prayer, there is this declaration of praise in which God, or excuse me, Jonah confesses that God is sovereign and God has saved him. Let's continue reading. But thou hast brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to thee into thy holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. But I will sacrifice to thee with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. And so Jonah, again, he's he's been thrown overboard. He is sinking to the depths, and God appoints this great fish. The fish swallows Jonah, and it appears that he realizes this is the instrument that God has has appointed, declared to save him. And so he, he seems to realize and seems to understand that God has spared his life. And so you go back to chapter 1. Even though he had attempted to flee God's presence, the project, God continued to pursue him, and especially through the form of this great fish. And so finally we have verse 10, in which Jonah experiences deliverance. Really twice. He is delivered from the ocean depths and drowning, and he's delivered from the belly of the great fish. So the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. Jonah chapter 1, he runs from God protesting. Chapter 2, he runs toward God through prayer. I want to suggest four uh, lessons this morning. Uh, Points to ponder, if you will that we might learn from chapter 2 as we seek to overcome, again, our own reluctance, perhaps, in being more willing to share our faith and tell others about Jesus. Number one, disobedience necessitates discipline. Now, discipline from God is, at least for me, has always been something difficult to determine. You know, when, when, something, when something bad happens to us, I, I think it's only kind of natural for us to think, okay, what have I done? <laughs> and, and maybe God uses a variety of life circumstances to teach us, 
to cause us to reflect. And in many cases, if we're honest with ourselves, we might be able to identify the discipline. And I think what Hebrews 12 says should, should encourage, encourage us that God loves those He disciplines. And when we experience discipline, it is because of God's love for us. Do you remember as a child, your parent, either your mother or your father, before they disciplined you, saying, this hurts me a lot worse than it hurts you. Anybody? Anybody remember that? And I, it just bugged me growing up. And so I, I kind of made this promise to myself and to any future children I might have, I would never say that to my children. And guess what? <laughs> I said it. Right? You, you, when, when you're a parent, you kind of realize that, okay? And it, it, especially with grandchildren. Do, do you really have to discipline grandchildren if you're a grandparent? I, I don't know that I ever have. I think Lori has, but I don't think I have. And I'm going to remind Jet of that as he grows up, you know, kind of a thing. But, but, but God experiences that as well. Right? And again, this, this is a lesson that Jonah needs to learn. And when we get to the end of this study in a couple of weeks, we're, we're going to see that it doesn't appear that Jonah ever quite gets it. Right? Which leads us to lesson two. And that is, God's grace is sufficient. The pagan sailors learn that. Jonah appears to be learning that here in this psalm of thanksgiving, this prayer that we have in chapter 2. But when we get to chapter 4, we're going to see that, that Jonah maybe doesn't quite understand this. Right? Even as God disciplines, he still loves us. And he's still extending his grace to us. And even though Jonah tried to run from God and shirk his responsibility, God pursues, God hangs in there, and that is a display of God's grace. In 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 9, as, as Paul reflects on a, on a circumstance uh, in his life, God, Paul writes, God tells him, my grace is sufficient for you. So, so how is God's grace sufficient? It is what we need, and it is all we need. And if we have received God's grace, truly received that grace, it becomes our responsibility then to extend it and to share it. And, and, and God is trying to teach this lesson to Jonah to compel him to fulfill that commission. Paul doesn't use the word grace in 1 Corinthians 9, but he does say God's love compels me. Right? God's love, God's grace is, is one of the motivating factors that should compel us 
motivate us to share what we have received. Lesson number three. Deliverance creates the obligation of worship. That's one of the reasons we come together every Sunday is to express our love and our appreciation through worship uh, corporately uh, to God. We we often talk about uh, the five acts of worship. Beginning in verse 7, we can identify maybe Jonah's five acts of worship. He remembers the Lord, right? Uh, I know since I've been here on several occasions, uh, our communion message, uh, uh, the individual has emphasized uh, the importance of remembrance in how in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, God um, reminds us of certain things through, through certain ways and, and why does God do that? Because as human beings, we tend to forget. Right? But Jonah remembers the Lord and understands that, that God has saved him through this great fish. He then, number two, he prays. He prays to God. Uh, number three, he mentions uh, sacrificing in, in verse 9 that that once he is expelled from that fish, he will sacrifice once again uh, to his God. Probably, you know, the application or one application we can make uh, in our lives. We give our bodies as a sacrifice. Romans 12, uh, verse 1. Uh, He offers thanksgiving. We've already mentioned that uh, this this prayer uh, could be labeled as a psalm of thanksgiving in which Jonah reorients his life towards God. And then finally, he makes a vow. He, and he says he will keep that vow, fulfill uh, that vow that he has made to God. Five pretty good acts of worship, if you will, that certainly can find application into our own lives. And then number four, this, this psalm of thanksgiving, this prayer concludes with salvation is from the Lord. The word translated salvation can mean welfare, prosperity, even in military context, victory. Uh, it is often translated as deliverance, as in the New Revised Standard Version. Deliverance is from the Lord. And again, Jonah has been delivered uh, not once, but maybe twice in this episode, uh, once from drowning and once from the belly of, of the great uh, fish. And the fact that deliverance or salvation belongs to the Lord, it, it means that God is the source of salvation. God is the source of deliverance. And we know, uh, of course, in the book of Acts, Uh, Peter and John, you know, declaring that there is no other name under heaven through which we can be saved than Jesus. And so God provides deliverance. He provides uh, salvation through Jesus. Jesus is the source of our salvation. And so the fish, this, this great fish that... Uh, The last verse of chapter 1, verse 17, tells us that 
that God appointed to swallow Jonah is not just an instrument of God's judgment, but rather of his salvation because it saves Jonah from drowning. In fact, in fact, the Hebrew word that is translated as salvation or deliverance or victory is Yeshua. The masculine form is Joshua. And the Greek translation, guess what, is Jesus. And so the fish actually becomes a symbol for Christianity in the early days of the post-apostolic church. You can visit the catacombs in Rome today. And throughout these catacombs, you can uh, find this, this little symbol that looks like a fish. You've probably seen it on bumper stickers or billboards or Christian books in Christian bookstores. You can buy them in a little plastic form and stick them to the back uh, of your car. Well, why is that? Why did Christians choose, in, in many cases, a little fish as the symbol uh, of Christianity. Well, behind me, you find the Greek word for fish, which is pronounced ichthus, all right? And it, and it forms a little ancient acrostic, if you will, where each letter represents a word, all right? The first Greek letter is about uh, iota, eazus, or Jesus, the second letter, uh, which looks like uh, an X uh, to us, is the letter chi, or key, which stands for Christos, Christ. The next letter is a theta, uh, which is the first letter for the word uh, God, uh, theao. The next letter, another vowel, upsalom, uh, huios, uh, son, uh, is the translation for that word. And then it ends with a sigma, uh, which is the first letter for the Greek word for salvation uh, or savior, soter. The fish thus becomes sort of, of a code word or even a code symbol during times of persecution by which believers expressed this conviction. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and my Savior. Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. And so the question this morning is, is that our own conviction? Is, is that what we truly believe? And if it is, are we willing to maybe overcome some of the reluctance we have for whatever reason, to be more willing to share our faith, to go forward and make disciples. Mark's going to lead us in one more song. As we sing this song, I hope all of us will reflect upon the life of Jonah as well as our own life and make the commitment, make the decision to overcome our own reluctance and become more evangelistic in our own lives. Let's stand and sing.